welcome to this, frankly, deservedly extra-long episode of Toby Haydock's Who's Round. Warning, this has graphics content. Well, I've been treated to a lovely lunch. Um, the sun is shining, and uh, I'm with somebody whose work has adorned more episodes of Doctor Who than possibly anybody else's. I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. I don't know why you're talking to me about Doctor Who, but people do. <laughs> I get a lot of... Uh, I, 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 usually about uh, one or two people a year. Um, I get invited to Doctor Who things which I, 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 I avoid in a way. Um, it, it'll take, take a, a psychiatrist to explain that I suppose because uh, it's a very distant memory for me um, but uh, um, the, I, I have done a lot of work um, in graphic design, moving graphic design and Doctor Who was one of them and the thing is that um, I suppose it's because the programme is so popular that it goes on being remembered. If this had been done for, I don't know, uh, Peter and the, uh, and, the, and, the, and the black men or something, um, it wouldn't be remembered. But Doctor Who just came out and stuck and you really got uh, followed. So people, it's got an obsessive uh, following. <laughs> That's it. Dogged, I think we'll yeah. say. We'll say yeah, dogged. dogged. Well, uh, but well, you are Bernard Lodge, and you did. You designed. I mean, to design one classic title sequence for a program is an achievement. But to to do the first five, and they're all terrific bits of work. So maybe we need to go right back to the beginning and um, uh, sort of find out how you you got to be doing the job of designing the very first title sequence right. for Doctor Who. Right. Well, people do ask me. Uh, you know, they, they usually say, how was you, you, you did a storyboard for it and obviously worked all these things out. And I say, no, it's, it's all accidental. In fact, uh, the producer, uh, Verity Lambert, uh, came to graphic design department, got me, and she suggested I come to Ealing Film Studios to see some film they'd got. And um, this was all free because they'd got some free howl-round technique, this electronic effect, which is soft, blobby moving clouds, which I thought was fantastic because I'd never seen anything on video that I liked because I mainly worked, um, all the graphics I've worked on film. And, um, and I was expected to, um, to do some lettering and it would all be put together and that would be it. But I suggested that couldn't we try and do something with the lettering? Um, on this video technique and apparently you know she explained roughly what it what it, how it was done you know they had a spot of light and the and the camera looked at this and the camera was controlled to a monitor and it saw this spot of light on a monitor and it was a howl round and uh, by adjusting the camera uh, features it could gradually uh, create this this uh, howl round so I thought, well, you know, if it can do that with a spotlight, it could do something with a lettering, possibly. I didn't know. So I turned up. They, they got the money. And it took um, Studio 4, I think it was, a whole studio, the whole morning. And, uh, and there was just a gallery. There were, the, there were these technical people I didn't know. And I turned up with my 
uh, Doctor Who on my little card and put it on the stand. And uh, and when they did this transition, and uh, Ben Palmer was the chap in control of it, I think. I didn't know at the time, but I knew him subsequent. You know, Ben Palmer was the seemed to be the wizard. And he um, devised, you know, a symmetrical look because the the effects he did uh, look best when they're symmetrical, like a raw shark test. And um, and so the lettering is sort of Doctor Who is... Luckily, it was a very, very simple logo. And uh, it lent itself to being mirror-wise mirror for a moment. And then when the effect is through, then it goes, becomes clear. And the zoom back. And... Uh, and I was given the job of editing. This was, um, it was a terrible job because they got the electronic going and when it looked like it was going to be good, run run the, the telecine, which was, sorry, the recording. What, what was it called? Telerecording, the telerecording. And when the telerecording got going, the effect wasn't very good. So then they kept it going, then they stopped it. And then when they got, let's get it going again. And... That way, we gradually got some stuff, and it was recorded on 35mm. It was an option for, they had a 16mm and a 35mm telerecording, but it was done 35mm. And um, they, they created great big cans of film, and they already had a lot of film. And one of the things that uh, uh, Verity made a point of was, you've got to include this line coming up which was what they had left over in the old stuff, because they loved that. So that is the opening. And, uh, and we edited it, and uh, oh, I went for a meeting in her office with a chap called Ron Grainer, who was doing the music. And uh, Ron Grainer said, you know, how long is it? And when does the title come on? I think it comes on at 20 seconds. And we went away, and he went away, went away to edit my thing. And when I got his uh, music and put it next to the film, it was magic. It all absolutely fitted every frame. But it wasn't... It was accidental. I mean, the, I, I learned afterwards that this frequently happens, that the music uh, happens to work with it, you know, and works on, on the cut or after the cut, even looks better. Anyway, it, the music was wonderful. Uh, Delia Derbyshire did all the... the ele effect and um, and that was it that was Doctor Who number one and uh, do, there's footage that exists of um, you trying to get a, a face into it do oh, you yes. that? yeah they, they we did a, uh, one of the um, I think he was a production floor manager uh, we got his face into it and uh, we didn't have a photograph of uh, William Holden William Hartner Hartner William Hartner <laughs> sorry William Holden William Hartnell, um, and she was against, she thought it was very, very scary, which it was, so we didn't do that, and uh, I, I think the sequence worked better that it hasn't got a face on it, but uh, when the new Doctor Who came in, they thought it would be wise to have his face in it, and uh, I, I'd learnt something from this thing, that I could control it in a, in a way, because um, uh, the, the, the thing could be controlled by geometric pattern. Uh, I, I produced some parallel lines uh, and that 
influenced the beginning of this new one for the the two version, uh, the Patrick Troughton version. And um, I also devised a, a wipe effect for going through from Patrick Troughton to the sequence for the lettering, which was uh, which was a sort of a wipe, a high contrast wipe, and the wipe is done by uh, a big sheet of polystyrene, crumpled surface, and then uh, on a rotating motorized, a motorized rotating, so it's very very smooth. It goes, um, it goes from white, gradually casting shadows, and goes to black, and then that's used as a mat. You know, you you're matting out the the scene with the black one and you're letting the other scene in with the white one and that was done as a as a, a film optical so um, the other thing was that I control was the was the photography we we had a photographer Patrick and Patrick Trouden uh, made a, we made a point of getting the lighting very very symmetrical and some highlights on the either side of the face and um, this would affect uh, this is some of the the light source that would affect the um, the ele electronica technique uh, in the film. Um, but that that's more or less the um, uh, the picture for version number two. Version number three was the last time I used the Howround technique, which was uh, they had John Pertwee came in, and uh, I thought we would um, use new color cameras, and uh, they found out that. It couldn't produce the effect we wanted. It was something to do with the uh, the the image orthocon cameras, which was a fairly crude camera, um, and it the the way the image started to die or be you know effect into this howl round was was it lent itself to it, and uh, the new super sharp camera couldn't couldn't do it. Um, so we had to use the old image orthocon, um, black and white, and then I put the, the sequence together uh, with a colour effect. And, you know, somewhere out at um, Uxbridge, I used a company, and I can't remember the name, chap of the name, Pete somebody. He had this, uh, by, by uh, a BIPAC system where he runs a negative, and positive in the camera and we had a sheet of tracing paper and behind that we had some colored gels and the tracing paper made the colored gels soft and uh, various we, we ran the, the thing and various colors through it and uh, it was rather delicious actually the color going through this old black and white stuff was really rather super and I used uh, my uh, I think I used a sort of circular, uh, concentric circles as a graphic image, again, to affect the howl round. And then the, the photographing, which was even more extreme, the highlights on the side were even more extreme. Um, so that was, it wasn't remarkable because it was, uh, it was old, the old howl round technique um, in colour. Uh, but I like number three. I think it's, um, it has a simplicity about it. But um, the thing with John Pertwee, uh, he's very unreliable because, ah um, oh yes, no, it was the producer, change producers, and I can't remember the name of the directors or the producers. This producer uh, wanted something else. He was, you know, we've had enough howl round, and um, 
we were all rather intrigued in the graphic design department by uh, Doug Trumbull's effects on 2001. He did this light uh, journey at the end, which is fantastic. And he wrote an article in the American Cinematographer explaining um, how it was going <laughs> and um, explained how it was done. And one of the designers, uh, Alan Jeeps, uh, did a title sequence uh, using the technique, but it wasn't the technique at all. And it was just sort of uh, use some shapes going through space, but it wasn't, it wasn't slit scan. And uh, I read the article again, and then it dawned on me that what he had was these enormous camera track in the studios where he did it. He had um, about 20 feet. And, and I realised that this was a camera tracking into this slot. Uh, he had a black background, he had a, a slot, and light coming through that controlled by some pattern. But anyway he would travel towards this slot with one frame locked and then he would do another tri trip back on the next frame. So each frame took all the, all the time of a track and it's a long, long process. And I thought, well, we can do it on a rostrum camera which comes down and uh, we happened to use, they had two cameras in uh, BBC which we, we used to use, um, but there was a camera uh, with this Uxbridge company, which was, um, which was motorised and controlled, so that it could do a smooth track. So we had uh, five foot, not twenty foot, but we had five foot. We could track in, and um, and I could go into a circular tunnel. And I thought, well, at the end of the five foot, I've got to make it soft. So there's ambiguity as how deep it goes. So. Um, we could, uh, you start, well, you can start at either end, whether you go in towards the round slot or come up. And then by passing some pattern underneath the slot, each frame shoots a slow track in and it has a certain amount of pattern behind this slot. And then it does the next frame and it has a, a slightly different by moving the pattern behind. And then this seems to travel down this spatial thing. Now you can make round tunnels, you can make uh, square tunnels, diamond shaped tunnels and I realised we can make a tunnel in the shape of Doctor Who. So all this went on. Um, God knows how much money I spent because it never came to light. Uh, we were using this company and it was trial and error. We got a few frames here, looked promising. Sometimes there was a judder. And the chap shooting it was, was, couldn't believe it that he had to sit there all day and he had to get the frame that started the camera coming down and the thing that was moving the thing sideways under the slot had to start absolutely together. He had to push the two toggle switches together and then release them at the end. And he was there all day doing this shot. And... Um, <laughs> You know, he uh, years later he said, "Yeah, I worked on Doctor Who." Yeah, <laughs> but um, then then we decided that uh, I could go ahead with the thing, and it's quite complicated. And I wanted to do the face actually coming through. I don't know how you you know this technique worked with a a simple slot of light. How do you do a face? Um, and then I've discovered another trick because one of the animators. Uh, we used, had his own little camera 
and you couldn't afford a camera that faded, that could do a fade out and a fade in. So we used a Polaroid filter. And I went there and I thought, well, how does this, oh, this is marvellous. You, you mean you just simply turn that and it fades it out just by turning one Polaroid against another. Yes, he said. So I got uh, a chap to make me a Polaroid thing to go under the film camera and I got a little motor to drive it. And so you start in close up on the face, which is covered, by the way, with a dot. So you've got lots of little quillard of your slots, but little dots. You start in close up and it's all dark. And by pulling out, pulling out and revealing with the Polaroid, you get the face. And this was done. And then, of course, you had the real face come into it. Uh, I can't even remember the sequence uh, where, where the tunnel came through. I'd have to... Uh, run it again but uh, it was quite complicated and I finished that sequence and within a short time he decided um, the, doc the doctor who was doctor who uh, d well Tom, Tom, Tom you did but, first, uh, but, first with Pertwee and then with Tom Baker yeah. um, John Pertwee decided to leave I'd only just finished this one it was, gonna, it was supposed to last a long time because it was very very expensive uh, we had Tom Baker so I had to use some of the material, which was the tunnel, and I thought we'd use the um, the police box. And it, unfortunately, no, I mean, this is because of the five foot, which is a total distance we could track, but the, the, it couldn't come from a tiny, tiny box up close up, you know, we're restricted. Uh, but I got a, quite a nice effect with the, the face by using a negative of the face uh, with some colours in there. And uh, otherwise, it's, it uses, you know, the John Pertwee effects. But uh, that was that. Well, I, th I mean, I think they're all marvellous pieces. I think the second Pertwee one, I, you, did you win an, you won a, an award for that, didn't you? Did you win a, yes, a BAFTA Crowd? Yes, that's right. I yes, think that means... Right. And Duke of Edinburgh gave it to me. That's and, not bad. Uh, and he gave it to me and he said, I like Doctor Who. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, an avid listener of this podcast, Jim Smith... When I hinted to him I was coming to see you, he said that as a result of that award, you are the first person involved with Doctor Who to win an award oh. for Doctor Who. Oh. So that's not bad, is that's it? That's not bad. Well, one of those pencils out there, I don't know whether you're aware of the... Um, it, it's quite a prestigious thing. The, um, the DNAD, which stands for Design and Art Direction, which is the thing that all the advertising people, I mean, they spend a fortune on it. And uh, we all joined it, you know, graphic design, and you submit work for it, and if it gets in, it gets in, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And one of those was the silver award I got for Doctor Who number two. Ah. Uh, I put the Doctor Who number one in, but it didn't, didn't get any notices at all. The Doctor Who number two. So that was, for the that was for the Trout, Trout one. So. Yeah. Oh, so that even predates that. So you, you oh, yeah. were the first and... Earlier than we thought. Yes. Earlier yes. than you thought, Jim. Yes, I can show. It's in a book, so I get the data or something. Um, so that was the end of the Doctor Who era, I, I think. So let's go right back to what what had got you to the position where you were um, going to be um, a, a graphic designer for Doctor Who. What 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 had inspired you? Where had you trained, and how did you end up at the BBC? Well, I um, I trained at uh, Royal College of Art. You know, went went to you know Dover Art School, Canterbury Art School. And, you know, I mean, ridiculous. You know, that was four years, and that's when you go and get a job. But I won a... Um, I entered for the Royal College of Art, and I, I got accepted. So, wow. And my mother, you know, poor old mum, you know, I was going to be earning for another three years. It was a three-year course 
It's a two-year course now, but uh, and uh, I felt very mixed up actually in those three years. And uh, very exciting first year. The second year, you know, you work at it. The third year, you panicked, panicked, and um, I was pretty desperate that I wasn't going to have a good show. And I remember my wife coming to my flat and saying, what's that stuff in the bin? That, that stuff in the bin, that's good one, you can put that in. So I got it out of the dustbin and mounted it up and a few things. And um, I, got a good, I got a good pass, actually. Uh, and uh, we didn't have much experience of film. Uh, I mean, it was very badly organised in those days. There was one photographic room, and we all learned how to take a photograph and do uh, photographic experiments. And then we were uh, allowed to do a, an animated film. And, and about six of us worked together on this thing, which was to do with a, diamonds, a diamond beer thing. It wasn't very good. Um, and I wanted to get... A, I really wanted to get a job in television. I, I, I was interested. And uh, my wife um, and I both applied for a, a job at Rediffusion. Um, which was, you know, the uh, London weekend as it became, but Rediffusion Television. And, and it came down to um, a short list, and then it was only two people, and it was myself and my wife. She wasn't my wife at this point, and uh, she got the job. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I thought, oh, well, I took, well, I took a teaching job uh, for two terms, and then a job came up at the BBC, so I, I applied for that. And uh, and it was it was great. Uh, it was a terrifying experience, you know, never having done uh, commercial work, having done student work all the seven years. Uh, suddenly, find you've got about two or three projects which have to be done in about a week's time. And the other people there, there were two or three. There are, there are about a dozen people from art school because the BBC graphic designers were mainly sign-writing people. They didn't have any art school training at all. And they had lots of work to do on the studio, doing lettering. But the art school people were all about my age, about 20, 23, and, uh, and we were all interested in how things could be made. And there were no tutors, um, so we were just making it up as we went along. We learned the tricks, and uh, all our effects were were done and other people would crew them, you know. And uh, and when I got the Doctor Who thing, I mean, we'd, we'd already learnt by then. We were, we were doing um, effects by, um, oh, various things. Um, we, we, we stretched the limit of what you could do with a, uh, a rostrum camera and uh, painting out techniques. I mean, you know, to taking a, an image and then gradually breaking it up and painting it out and then run the film the other way and it appears to go and um, we, we, we learned these things uh, that way and, and a, a chap came in to join us who brought in some of the shiny stuff, this Miralon. Wow, what is that Miralon? Marvellous. Everyone was using Miralon, which you get marvellous reflections. And the other thing was that you could get terrific effects by bouncing a light you put a light source into this mirror and it makes marvellous patterns. So we would use these on everything. So that when I came to do the first uh, Doctor Who, I thought, oh, well, everything is going to look corny on top of that lovely, round, soft 
electronic stuff. And um, what? Well, we've talked about your your Doctor Who's, but what about some of the other things that you've done? What what, what are the, the the title sequences for television that you you know that you look on now and think you did a particularly good job on? Um, I think uh, I went through a phase of editing because. You know, the, the, the ideal title sequence is a thing that has a simple idea. You know, you take an image and maybe it's one thing that you're concentrating on. But the other way of uh, doing a title sequence is to have a lot of different things on it. The point is, having a lot of different things is fun to work with. And um, I did things like a Harold, a Harold Pinter play, which was broadcast for the first time, called Tea Party. And uh, I took my storyboard up to the producer uh, to show him, and Harold Pinder was in there, and uh, he said, I think it's a bit sex sexploitive, because I got a, 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 a sexy bust of a woman in one of the frames of the storyboard. And um, these things would appear in very, very minute. Um, I was fascinated by the way one image would react to another. In fact, you know... In these early days, I was reading all the books, and Eisenstein uh, was was the chap to read, and how uh, the effect of one image next to another one it drives the other image on. You know, the and he, he gave the sequence of uh, a thing with the lion, the uh, lion statue being broken up, and it was interesting. You know that I could put. A, a terribly simple static image followed by a live action movement and uh, on this Harold Pinder thing I used all kinds of stuff and then I had another job like that which was um, what is it what am I talking about uh, I've got not, not the man alive man alive the man alive Sorry, no, no that's fine yeah. this will all edit together fine now um, Man Alive, which was the subject matter, was very, very broad. There could be home uh, sequences, there could be, there could be abroad, you know, political um, things abroad, and uh, it was a sort of it was a, for the list. It was a it was a it was a different documentary each week, yes, wasn't it? About yeah, sure, issues sure. of the day. Yeah. So the the producers uh, left me to it, uh, and uh, I shot some footage. I mean, I used my wife and kids and some friends from the department got them running down the road and uh, a lady model and a, a couple of wrestlers and uh, then I went back and said you know we need some international stuff and the uh, producer uh, David Wilcox is that right he was the husband of um, oh Desmond Wilcox Desmond Wilcox right. husband yeah Desmond Wilcox um, he suggested some things and he uh, looked at my, you know, uh, accumulation, the rough cut. He said, yeah, it's absolutely fine. But I've got a marvellous shot for you. Absolutely super. He said, <laughs> he said it's a shot of a woman crying over the death of a child. It's a marvellous shot. And it was, it's a shot of um, a Vietnamese, uh, you know, mother. And it's terrible. But it's in there. And that, that's, that's a Wilcox shot. Um, and... Uh, that was it, and uh, I, I ended up with, uh, I think it begins and ends with London Bridge, you know, people walking across London Bridge. That was one. Then the other, um, my other sort of tendency was towards uh, a use of the soft um, 
wipe. And uh, it was influenced actually by um, a student show. I'm a great cribber, you know. I went to a student Royal College show and somebody had a, a photograph which was a composite. It had some images of landscape and some intimate things and there was a kind of soft wipe. It was just, just a static image, that's all. But it was really thrilling and I thought, hmm... I could perhaps develop that, and what I had to do was have a moving wipe effect, and um, so I designed a series of blobs, which we did, I did with paint on cell, and they were symmetrical, and they moved outwards, and this hard edge thing is then put in the in the um, uh, the, the printer, that is put out of focus, and then you take the the scene before and then the scene afterwards and they do the wipe effect and uh, and this was a way of mixing um, you know flowers with a gravestone and various things together and I took the photographs for it it was a Thomas Hardy series called uh, Wessex Tales that's right Wessex Tales and uh, the producer of that Irene Schubert mm. um, she liked that. So she said, I've got a program called The Mind Beyond, and, uh, you know, let's see what you could do for that. And it was all to do with uh, the psychotic, supernatural, and the, these. And I thought it was to do with the faces of the different people. Uh, a man and a woman, a young girl, an old person. And, um, and I liked the idea of uh, the softness, which means that the face looks as if it's growing out of a wall or the girl is being her head is emerging from leaves and you know it, and at the end I thought we've got to get somewhere we had a face and um, I would make the the face the eyes disappear and become almost like a double sunset um, but the um, the at the opening it would have uh, a a falling I don't know like a cathode uh, drop you know which would be which would be running down throughout the whole thing um, so that was that was uh, that effect um, and Doctor Who sort of uh, when I left the BBC for good um, I was trying to freelance um, I didn't go to work for a company I worked for myself. And I got a few jobs, uh, spin-off from Doctor Who. I mean, I did an awful one for chocolate. And, you know, this is a typical way advertising works. A chap uh, got a hold of me and said, you know, Doctor Who, where you go down that tunnel, could we go down a chocolate tunnel? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I've got to earn a living, you know, earn a living. But thank God it doesn't get seen anymore. And... Um, and the, the company that I'd worked for, for for a while, you know, I got them to shoot the thing. Uh, they made the basic commercial, but um, I did I did it. I did it. Um, and uh, I had a few of those sort of Doctor Who inspired things. But I couldn't use the, um, you know, the Hal Round technique. I noticed that it was used by uh, um, Maurice Binder, the chap who did the, the early... Um, James Bond title sequences, and he did one for um, a Cary Grant film. I can't remember what it was, which which what it was called. 
But uh, it used it, you know. Uh, he, he got in and saw Ben Palmer and got some stuff done on it. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think uh, that Doctor Who effect, I don't think it, it helped me after that. Then I had to use... The technique of the that I developed for it, mind you, I used, which was one of, which I didn't use on Doctor Who, but it's the perspective, because the scan effect, um, you can pass over a flat photograph and track out with this slot effect, and it puts the thing in perspective, which is really good. And um, I had a, a client who came to me uh, who was making a film about Iran, I think it was. And this is back in uh, uh, 79. And um, it, it was, he was a crook, actually. He had a lot of money momentarily. And I got paid uh, to do some tests. And I thought, you know, the dragon would be a nice thing. So I did this dragon, and it was very, very good. Got this perspective rolling in. Um, but it didn't come to anything. But then years later, there was a program on China, a very, very good uh, series made by um, uh, a BBC producer. And uh, The Heart of China, it was called. And uh, I used this um, simple technique to sort of go very slowly over this dragon getting near to his head. That's a good title sequence, something simple for a change. Um, then we went to computers, because um, when I left the BBC, I had two years um, on my own, and then I had so much work that I had to get somebody to help me, so I invited Colin Cheeseman, who was at that time head of graphic design and BBC, and he decided he had enough of that, and he'd come out and join me, and uh, two of us in the little office in Dean Street, and then a girl that we got to help as uh, an assistant. And uh, when he came over, uh, <laughs> he came over for one weekend um, with his wife, uh, which was the weekend uh, before our first day in the, in the office, you know, and he said, so, so what are we going to work on on Monday? I said, well, we, have, we haven't got anything actually for sure, Colin. <laughs> um, but it all came that week. We had uh, lots of, uh, we did a uh, logo for um, uh, Norwich Union, uh, it was the thing of the, the cathedral and all the beams floating around. That's the beam effect they wanted. Um, and we got a lot of those. We had the whole commercial to do with, with uh, graphic design. Um, that was one. And, um, and then I got a big one for um, a petrol commercial. And uh, I had to do uh, a road... And it was an imaginary road. Uh, it was a road which was just made of the lines that you get on the road and some distant lights. And then it went through a sort of a fantasy urban, uh, which is made up of hanging neon signs. But I, I, would, I would bore you by telling you how complicated it is. It's, it's seconds on the screen. It was very, very complicated. And it wasn't using... It looks like computer technology, but it wasn't, except that the computer controlled a camera, a rostral camera. But uh, then we did a lot of work, uh, out of which we made some money, but did very, very little creative work, because it all depends on the opportunities you get. But we, we managed 
you know, two or three jobs a year to be proud of. And we, you, I mean, you touched upon, that, and we looked at that uh, advert that you're talking about um, that isn't computers, but you would think it was. Yeah. Now, of course, um, many of, most of the title sequences and things is, is, is all CGI computers. Yeah. So uh, from an expert's perspective, from somebody who's done it, what, what do you think of, of the computer-generated stuff that we have now? And would you have liked to have been using that? Or do you think the practical element is important to the success of the stuff that you did? Um, well, I used all I could use in, in those days. Um, but if I'd had the computer technology as it exists today, uh, it would have been a lot easier. Um, I, could, I could do the same effect, exactly, uh, with computers. Um, I don't know, in a way, the complications of, of this thing where you had to think so carefully that you were going to do... I mean, it was incredible number of exposures in the camera. And therefore you thought the shapes that you're going to put in, they've got to be right. And there's no way of seeing the effect that you had. Well, you could do some sort of tests here and there. But it was, it was, it was planning to do something that you couldn't see now. You had to imagine it. And I, I, was, um, I was no good at maths. Uh, I failed my maths exam at grammar school. Failed on maths. But I learned... Um, I, I did nothing but maths. I had a, a, the, the column coming down... Um, I had numbers from the five for the five feet, and I did sums that would say this is going to be at this height, this is going to be at that height, and work it out. I worked with numbers to do it, so I, I came back to maths in a way. Um, so that is a lot of care goes into it, but I think that um, uh, there aren't there aren't uh, that many title sequences using computers that I've seen, except for the new current Doctor Who thing, which is very, very good, I think. Excellent. Um, but a lot of the good title sequences, like in America, uh, since the HBO thing came in and really took off, they are fantastic. And uh, I, I, would met, I met some BBC people the other day who were thinking of writing a, uh, a book to pull together all the BBC graphics work and, you know, how good it was and and I said, yes, but the trouble is, uh, I said to Michael, Graham Smith, the trouble is, Michael, uh, look at The World at War, which is done by two guys at Thames. That is the best title sequence on air at the moment, made in 1970-something. Uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. It works so well. That's the best title sequence. Then if you look at the, um, the sequence uh, for the... Sopranos, brilliant. It's just live action, but it's brilliant live action. A journey from New York uh, out into New Jersey. You know, very tells a story. Very, very good. Um, the one for Six Feet Under, which is fantastic. You know, um, done with great skill. The Americans never did this because uh, the Americans, when they came over to the BBC, they said, gee, gee, you are uh, title sequences. Americans didn't have title sequences because... Uh, all they did was slap some lettering over it and get on with it. But HBO, um, for some reason, uh, they're allowed to do it. And uh, I saw one quite recently, which was the, uh, the True, De True Detective, mm. which is brilliant, yeah. brilliant opening title sequence. 
And there's one other one. I'm sure there was another one. Well, yes, that, that's about it, but uh, they are very good. I've just started watching a show called The Leftovers, and that's got a brilliant, brilliant title sequence. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Really interesting, yeah. and it's right. And Desperate Housewives did it as well. They did. They did seem to. They sort of. They, they, it's they've gone back to the art of heralding the show with something, as you yeah. say, other than just clips with yeah. the actors' names over. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, but lest we forget, it's not just title sequences and 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 adverts things. You, um, uh, Doctor. One piece of classic sci-fi is not enough. You worked on uh, Alien and Blade Runner for Ridley Scott. So oh, how yes, did that happen? Yes. Yes. Oh, well, that, that's rather accidental because um, uh, this was 1970, this is in 79, that's right, 79, I was on my own, and I worked with Film Effects, Film Effects did all my filming, you know, the Rostrum camera, and there's a really nice guy there, and they did any slit scan that we, that we needed to do, and they did the slit scan one for the petrol company, and uh, they did lots of optical effects, and some opticals, they, they came... Um, you know, doing things for Attenborough, uh, for Gandhi. They were putting crowd scenes together, optically putting more people in than he had there, and so on. And uh, they had one job that came in. It was apparently for Alien, um, and apparently they wanted some science. I'm trying. Oh yes, uh, they wanted a, a, a monitor, and they wanted some information on the monitor. So I went out for a meeting um, to uh, Elstree Studios. I met. Uh, dear old uh, Ridley Scott, who was uh, a student two years behind me at Royal College, but there he was, making Alien, bless him. And um, he showed me, um, uh, they'd, they'd tried to do, uh, oh yes, he had some people doing an effect, and it was very, very boring. It was obviously uh, just ordinary computer effect, messages going across, but these messages are very very important, absolutely crucial to the story. And uh, I thought, well, I, I, can, I can do something like that. Yes, I can put some light into it. So I went and um, fiddled around with black paper and some cell and uh, codoliths are the things that we use. You know, have the lettering printed onto codolith, which is a transparent thing. And then uh, I had the idea of uh, these messages being written and the, the guide, the little cursor, that's the word I can never remember, cursor, the cursor would be animated. So it would run across and there'd be various lettering under it. So it changes as it's going along, wiping in the message. And then it would do another line and it would um, and give a light, slight glow, have a light glow around it. Um, and this would give the, the message some sort of important, you know, thing to, to catch people. And um, they liked it very much. Um, and we had to do a sequence that showed when he switched on the computer in the film, um, you know, a little pattern comes up. And they had various other odd jobs like um, uh, signs, you know, saying, you know, alert now, alert now, alert now. All those things were the, the, the danger, the danger zone. And that was more or less it. And then there was an after effect he came and uh, can you do explosions <laughs> because they tried to do an explosion when um, the um, she blows up the the main the heroine blows up the main spacecraft and she escapes in a small craft and she looks through the window and she sees it blow up 
and they tried everything. They had effects, they had, they got uh, all sort of sparks and things, but it didn't look like uh, the explosion in outer space. Um, so I then went and got um, some film and sat through some, you know, film of uh, actual H test, H bomb tests. And the nice thing about them was, the nice thing about them, the effective thing was the way the spread, the kind of spread of light at the bottom, as well as the, the cloud going up. The cloud isn't important, it's the spread of light. So I thought, well, we'll do another hour, bit of, uh, another of our uh, jobs. Yeah, so we got a... The, the, the effect was, um, the effect was, the actual technique was um, a, a wipe which reveals light gradually. Uh, it's open from nothing and gradually it lets the light in by horizontal mats going in different directions. Um, and then some coloured gel. Then on glass, on a couple of film bobbins. And then tracing paper to, to soften the whole effect. And uh, we tried that out, and we got, you know, ordinary film ratio, and it came out, and I thought, well, it's, it's sort of effect, it sort of works, I don't know, I don't know whether they'll like it. So we went out to Elstree, and uh, they were doing their sound recording at the time, I was amazing doing all the, the way they do that sound mixing, incredible. Anyway, um, they ran the film, but it came out in CinemaScope. And it was fantastic, you know, it spread, you know, much wider. Mm. So, so we decided to use that. And then I did a, a slit scan perspective thing of clouds coming towards you afterwards. But, you know, it's, it's terrible, really, for um, what you could do today with computers. It would be unimaginable. This is all we could do. But we, they used it. That's all they had. And... Uh, so that was it. Then um, his next uh, film was Blade Runner, which um, he uh, had this sequence where where um, Harrison Ford mm. uh, has a photograph. That's right. Oh, bless you! Thank Do you, you, need you so your much. All right. Thought you might. Yeah. That was lovely. Can, can you get yeah. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Take care. Your Harrison Ford has a photograph um, of a room, uh, and it has a man asleep in one corner, leaning on his, leaning on his elbow, and that's that's it. A very very simple room, and we have to go into this. And the idea is that the camera goes into this. Uh, yeah, on a, the idea is that you put the photograph into a special monitor and this monitor um, will, will take you into uh, the photograph wherever you want by giving it instructions and then go round the corner at the end there's a little room round that goes around it finds things and so on. So this room was set up and looked uh, tremendous, you know, daylight coming in from the left and um, we were a whole week filming this thing because it was very, very fiddly. And... Um, uh, we we had to keep the quality very very high and uh, um, I thought well obviously if we shoot uh, at normal speed uh, we, we're filming a still but we go in and film a still closer and closer there's no movement but the camera's running so you get the quality and 
we 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 after the first day we, we realized that, that my promise wasn't very good because um the cameraman had had to shoot at a slower rate to get the precision they wanted this everything to be so sharp to get that sharpness he needed to shoot at 8 frames uh, per second and the result of that was that the chap who was sitting hunched up in the corner you saw his 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 elbow moving this was the only live thing, but you could see it. And it made the shoot in that way impossible. So we had to, okay, it's eight frames and it's going to get a little bit rougher and rougher towards the end. But in fact, it didn't really matter because uh, the idea of when you got in closer and closer and closer, you know, the face became almost speckled. I mean, it seems natural, but um, terrible, terrible problems we had there with, with mirrors and I had to do uh, some curses that uh, went into the thing, and then, uh, and then it, it mixed, mixed, mixed uh, various frames. I put a, um, a a negative blue image, you know, in between the positive images when it panned across, jerky, jerky, jerky. Uh, that was that was that job anyway. So he'd been two years behind you at uh, at uh, art school, um, Ridley Scott, had, and he'd then joined the BBC. Um, so had you, had you marked him down for greatness early on? Did you? Did he? Did no, he... I didn't really notice him. <laughs> <laughs> but when uh, I met him, actually, uh, when he when I left the BBC, I was there from uh, nineteen sixty to uh, sixty seven, and I was invited by a commercial company called uh, um, uh, Strike Pledger Perkins. Um, and uh, to work for them for a couple of years. I thought it seemed a break, I'll, I'll do it. And um, and he came in there one day and he was working, he did jobs for them apparently as well. But he was already getting a, a, a company together and he, he had the best, best company for commercials. He was the chap, he was doing the best commercials. And he, you know, he was a very dedicated filmmaker, I, I, I realised at that time. So, you know, some people do it. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think his, you know, his films are very, very good. His, uh, I like this first film very much, and Alien and Blade Runner, two that I know something of. But uh, you know, he's done the the one with the two girls. I can't remember that one. Oh, Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. Yeah, that was very good. And so you said you'd left the BBC to go to commercial, but then you went back to the BBC. Yeah, I went back to the BBC because uh, when I was working for this company, um, they changed over to colour. Uh, television went coloured and uh, I thought oh I'd like to be doing BBC titles now <laughs> and my friends Colin Cheeseman and Tony Tony Foster uh, they worked hard bless them to get me back in there and they did and uh, I had another seven years and it was I came back with some of the knowledge I had reaped from the commercial world so then but the standards were much much higher uh, and uh, it was a great help and uh, and what do you do now? What how, how do you spend your time? Ah oh, well, then, uh, Colin Cheeseman and I we worked for seven years, and um, a lot of young people had come out. Uh, the BBC was hit by John Burt, uh, which in a way is terrible, but in a way it's a good thing. I mean, it had to happen because we had a hundred and fifty people, graphic designers, which it didn't need. And uh, that I noticed that Colin and I were, were the first 
BBC people to set up business. Lodge Stroke Cheeseman. And then other companies came up, you know, and they were much, much younger. Colin and I were pretty long in the tooth at this stage. And after seven years, we decided to pack it in. And I decided I don't want to do anything to do with film or television anymore. I wanted to do books because when I was at art school, I was very, very keen on lino cutting. And uh, when I was with Colin, actually, I went to evening classes in London and woodcutting. I did woodcutting. Woodcutting is the oldest form of printmaking. I mean, we'd just been working on some very, very complicated computer work. You know, we're using all the latest uh, effects. But I went to woodcutting. And uh, I fiddled around and came up with an idea for a book. My wife is a fantastic book designer. She illustrates children's books. And I wrote some. When I was at the BBC, I wrote uh, several of her books. And um, uh, I had an idea for a book. And uh, she had an American friend in Richmond. Uh, and this lady was going to... Well, she showed my book to her and she said, it's a great idea, but... Uh, I think it's got great promise. I'll take it to Frankfurt. And she came back from Frankfurt, got a lady who said she'll have it. I, mean, I did about 12 books in about 10 years, some liner cut, some wood cut, some drawn the old-fashioned way. And um, I, what I really enjoyed was the actual printing, you know, the, the cutting of the liner, cutting of the wood, then the printing. And that sort of work sort of thinned out. I had a job which... Uh, I had one. I did sell an idea to America. Uh, they loved my story very, very much. They didn't want my drawings, which were good, and they had a terrible illustrator to do them. But I got very good return, good money for the story. But I decided that was it. That was the end of that era. <laughs> and what I wanted to do now was printmaking to to sell. And I wasn't really, I wasn't really interested in selling them because I know I, I couldn't live on it but we had by then some pensions uh, and I just wanted to uh, treat it seriously and we came down to Brighton and uh, we brought my printing press which I'd bought a Victorian printing press and uh, I've had about uh, 15 years of really seriously doing the, the printing show you Oh, we will say. Was there was there in the the because I know that your children have um, carried on the artistic flair. Was it in? Was were your parents artistic? No, my parents weren't artistic at all. My father was uh, a cinema manager uh, in Deal Kent, where I grew up, uh, and after the war, he was he was a manager. So that's why I got my love of the cinema. I could just go as many times as I liked and. It was in those days, you know, a little town like Deal had four cinemas, you know, after the war. And I could go to them all for free uh, because he knew all the managers. And I could take my girlfriend to them. You know. And um, uh, my mother was, wasn't artistic, but uh, um, I th our children are very artistic because uh, my, my son w w was a brilliant draftsman. I mean, his drawings at the age five were brilliant. And... Uh, he, he had uh, a rather sort of shattered time at art school, like I did, you know, slightly mixed up. And uh, I had one of these, when I was with Colin, we got one of these animation 
umatic um, machines where you can put your drawings, you do your drawings of the animation, and then you film, you umatic you them, and then you play it back immediately. And this was new, this was the year it started, because b before then you had to film them on 16mm, send them to the labs, they came back next day, you looked at your drawings, and if it wasn't right, do some more drawings. This was amazing. And uh, I love this machine so much, I thought, I'm going to teach myself animation. And I got a, so we bought another one of them, and I brought it home. And I used to play with it, and my son came down from Nottingham, where I was at art school, and he said, he said what's this? I said, well, it's animation, you know, you can draw on it, and you can fiddle around with it. And he was doing fine art, uh, not very well, you know. He, he could draw, he was good, but he was, he was slightly mixed up about it. He took to this machine, fantastic. He started drawing. He would, he would draw with, it, with the, uh, the pad on his lap, watching television, as it were, and drawing away, and he put it, and they worked. So uh, when he left, um, he, got a, he, got a, he got into Royal College and did a two-year course and designed animation and three-dimensional animation and made a very good film. And then he got a job uh, with the company and um, worked on more animation, it was more elaborate, and then he did little bits of live action, then he went into uh, uh, pop videos, and then eventually, you know, he's a live action director, and very, very successful. At least 52, he gets work, he has enough work, and uh, he, he said recently that uh, if, he, if he gets a couple of jobs this year, it'll be enough, and after that he, he thinks, I don't really want to do them anymore. He'll, he'll retire young because he can afford to. Now the eldest daughter, uh, Josephine, is a, a, an illustrator of children's books <laughs> and she does paper engineering. She's fantastic. She does the paper engineering which makes the uh, crocodile's mouth open, has it eating things and uh, does everything. And she's always, she's working all the time. She works for um, three publishers. Uh, and the other daughter had similar things. She did, um, you know, besides uh, meeting her husband, uh, American husband, and that's another long story, but um, she did some very successful children's books. But at the moment, they're in Australia, and she doesn't, she says she's bored by the children's books. She doesn't want to. She's got two young kids to look after, but she's a really uh, good girl. So I don't know whether she's going to do art, but she does art, she does abstract things which I think are rather exciting. I think when she comes home to England she should do printmaking, that would be good for her. With her Oscar-nominated husband uh, for, for, yeah, for, yeah, for sure, cinema work. Sure. So yeah. even, even non-direct family are, yeah, are, yeah. are, are inf have been infected by the yeah, bug. Yeah. <laughs> Great, well look, I've, I've taken up far more of your time than I promised I would. So uh, just the final two questions. The first one is um, uh, you haven't been paid for this, I haven't been paid for this apart from in the form of a lovely lunch, courtesy of your wife. Um, so what charity would you like the listeners to donate uh, to? Stroke. I had a stroke, and there's a thing I get from Stroke. I, I, I do a subscription to it, but uh, I keep getting asked for more. So I don't know what it's called, but... Uh, I think stroke Association, stroke is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll do a link. OK. Uh, and this podcast was initiated originally to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who, so it's listened to by Doctor Who fans all over the world. So what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Keep watching. <laughs> Keep watching. It'll go on for another hundred years. 
Well, Bernard Lodge uh, for your hospitality and for fascinating conversation and for some brilliant work on the screen that I think has remained unrivaled. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Oh, that is terrible. Thanks to Bernard Lodge, an absolute legend, and to him and his wife for their hospitality, and for my friend Peter for driving me there and spending the day with me and getting me back. Bernard's charity is the Stroke Association, www.stroke.org.uk. It's been a long one, so I'll say ta-ta. Big Finish presents Doctor Who Short Trips The Blame Game <laughs> The Doctor and I have the same outlook but perhaps we differ on the minutiae uh, We might half and path but we push in the same direction as it were which brings me to the point of my visit The Doctor glowered Yes, I wonder when we get round to that The monk had put his hands in the sleeves of his habit affecting an indulgent smile one of the many insightful expressions on this planet is to err is human, to forgive divine. <laughs> Doctor, I'll be the first to admit I have indeed uh, erred, but I'd also like to be the first to forgive. The Doctor's suspicion was a growl of disbelief. And it occurred to me that I could show my forgiveness by getting you off this little backwater and giving you your freedom. The doctor took his time, stirring a coffee. I hope you won't be too offended if I say I find that rather hard to believe. Your trial was quite the event. <laughs> now, of course, I could see you were fitted up, framed, let down by the process. But justice has to be seen to be done, doesn't it? And so, here you are. I thought the forced regeneration was particularly nasty, and now I see you in the flesh. It's even worse than... Uh... Mm, never mind. <laughs> Big finish. We love stories.